tuning into the Greenpeace, that's spelt P-I-E-C-E. I'm Warren Green, your host and one of the storytellers of this weekly podcast, where I'll be telling campfire stories about sustainable safaris, misadventures and travel tales from around the world. I have a number of interesting people, including safari guides, conservationists, lodge managers and philanthropists lined up to share their stories and expertise with you. So, grab yourself a beverage, sink back into a comfortable chair and enjoy the next half an hour with me. And so 2021 is well underway. We're already into the third week of January and life is looking really good. At this time of the year, it's starting to get bitterly cold. Occasionally the creek will freeze over and uh, we'll get some snow falling on the eastern side of the state of Virginia. Not too much of snow has fallen this year, but what I have seen and I find incredibly rewarding is two wonderful sightings of the shy American otter. You know, when I first started my podcast, I was raving because I had just seen a family of four hunting in the upper end of our creek. Well, this year it began no differently. A big male moving up and down the creek, foraging for crustaceans and uh, oysters and things. And I even saw him swimming and foraging amongst the fallen the limbs of a fallen pine tree where he scooped up a fish and flipped over onto his back and ate in front of me and more recently just a couple of days ago a pair of otters making their way up the creek fishing in tandem and it was quite remarkable to watch them because they would submerge almost like synchronized swimmers and re-emerge together with one of them either clasping a fish or both of them with nothing in their paws. Really remarkable sights. That complemented by the pair of bald eagles that I've been seeing on a fairly regular basis has made for a really tremendous beginning to a fantastic new year. Um, Hopefully a year that is going to usher in all sorts of good and exciting things for us and particularly us in the travel industry where we've had our wings severely clipped by COVID and uh, our travel plans suppressed and our industries um, have literally been gutted. So it's been tough 2020 and I'm really hopeful that 2021 is going to bring about good fortunes for us all. Talking of good fortunes, I was reading uh, on the social media just the other day, Sabi Sabi Private Game Reserve wrote a wonderful piece about their Nkombi camp, which is a training camp presented out in the wilderness of Sabi Sabi, intended for the training of their staff. And it brought back a flood of wonderful memories. So a little bit of background before I go into the story for you is back in the late 70s, early 80s, under the directorship of Michelle Gerard and Chris Kruger and a variety of other guys, Sabi Sabi launched its training program. Um, and in, by intention, it was to take new guides, potential guides, out of the lodging environment and into the wilderness where they would sleep in fairly rudimentary canvas tents on the ground on bedrolls and shower in bucket showers. Um, obviously, the bathroom was another facility with a, a loo with a fantastic view, which essentially was a a pit latrine with a wonderful box on top of it that we aptly named the Thunderbox. Um, but it was the most remarkable place to sit in the morning and watch as the sun rose over the wilderness. So Nkombi Camp is this charming little space nestled, or used to be, it's moved a few times now, but back in those days it was nestled underneath the canopy of a number of rather large and ancient jackalberry trees. Um, on the banks of an old meandering river that was dry for the most part of the year except for 
the height of the summer when the rains would come down and all the gullies would flow into this river and, and it would flood. It was the most beautiful sight. Um, but it was a great, it was a great campsite um, uh, where you would sit outdoors, dine around a fire and watch the sun and tell tales until you were tired enough to go to sleep. The executive of Sabi Sabi during that time, um, based in Johannesburg, felt that they wanted to reproduce our training and sell it on a commercial basis. And it was quite a viable idea. What we had noticed as guides taking people out on safari was that guests were always um, complimenting us on our ability to lead such professional safaris. And they wanted to know how we had got our training. It was a, a matter of intrigue, really. And when we described this training course, everybody who heard about it showed some interest in participating. You know, always had that, I wish I could do it, I wish I could do it, tone in their voice. And fortunately for the guys at Sabi Sabi, we really were privileged to have been able to enter our careers with the company um, based on the Nkombi camp training experience. Many of my colleagues who do listen to the podcast will appreciate what I'm saying because to become a guide at Sabi um, or a ranger at Sabi, you, you, the prerequisite was you had to go through this fundamental training. The training was geared to ensuring that you were equipped with good knowledge of the ecosystem. Remember, um, not everybody who worked at Sabi Sabi came out of a farming or a natural heritage type um, upbringing. Many of them had come out of the cities and were probably more skilled in, at interpersonal uh, relationships than they were at their, their knowledge of the bush. Um, and so the intention of the camp was to share knowledge and to build um, consistency across the, the guiding team. It was also a selection process where we were able to assess our colleagues' suitability to fit into our team. You know, a team is not made up of exactly the same characters and personalities. You wanted diversity. And particularly in the hospitality environment where you're taking people out on safari who come from different walks of life, different cultures, backgrounds, and language backgrounds. And so we needed to assess um, the suitability of candidates to join the, the Sabi team after they had completed their Nkombi camp. So it, had, it was a multifaceted camp, not just about ecological training and bush skills. Naturally, bush skills were a fundamental part of it. Um, if you were going to interpret your environment and share that with your guests, you, you really needed to be able to understand what was going on around you. It was fine to have some sort of encyclopedic knowledge of matter, but you really did need to understand the wilderness and how the various components fit together to create a bigger picture. Um, example of that would be uh, that if you were walking out in the wilderness, you needed to be on the lookout for or listen out for various warning signals that came in the form of crickets and insects through to birds through to other mammals that might give away the presence of uh, a variety of creatures some that were dangerous some that were just fascinating to see uh, and so you needed to be able to interpret all of that and uh, to be able to share it with your guests and so Nkombi Camp uh, touched on all of those because it was so exciting um, and, and, and dramatic guests really did want to play a part uh, you know, it was very dramatic getting into a four-wheel Land Rover and driving it through the wilderness over rocky terrain, through muddy patches, down through riverbeds, up steep banks, uh, negotiating fallen trees and getting into and out of an area when potentially you could get horribly stuck. And those skills need to be taught as well. Not everybody knows how to drive a four-wheel drive. In fact, one of our motives for the vehicle 
training was in a sense um, to save money because it was very easy in those days with the the old basic series two and three Land Rovers that we drove to snap a side shaft through over exuberance or just simply not understanding how that vehicle was intended to be driven and then of course there were the other skills practical skills like tracking animals figuring out where they were hanging out so that you could drive your guests in to get a good and safe view of them um, sometimes when you were tracking you would need to carry a firearm you might be walking into a pride of lions you might be walking into an enraged elephant but one never knew and one needed to be safe also we took guests on walks and you know not everywhere in the world do you walk with a firearm but when you're walking guests into a potentially dangerous game you want to make sure that their safety is top of mind and front of mind and therefore handling a rifle in a safe way is critical and so we we had ballistic training sessions as well also understanding that a lot of the South Africans at that time had come out of a uh, war environment and had been militarily trained and were used to carrying a lower caliber automatic weapon was very different when you had to handle the heavy 458 round that when you pulled the trigger could in fact put you on your back as quickly as it dispatched its bullet. So training was a prerequisite and that's what our Nkombi camp was all about. A fascinating program, peer-led lectures by, by guys who you worked with or women who you worked with who had a superior knowledge of a species or another. Um, and so on occasion during our combi camps, we would bring in field specialists from the Kruger National Park, from Skakuza, where they had a fantastic research center, um, where scientists would come over and share their knowledge on specific topics. And so Nkompi Camp built up this reputation for being one of the finest training programs in the safari industry back in those days. Testimony to the quality of that training program were the guys who went on to assist in the development of the Field Guides Association of South Africa, FAGASA as it's commonly known today. Michelle Gerard and myself, Paul Swart, um, were a couple of the fellows who got involved and eventually Grant Hind who took over the reins and ran it supremely well and developed it into the sort of almost pan-African training program uh, that is now today recognized throughout the continent. So. That just under, underwrites the, or endorses rather, the quality of the guides and, and rangers that worked at Sabi Sabi and were party to Nkombi camp. For all of us, it has very special memories. For me, and one of those memories is a story that I'm about to tell, and it's, um, in, this, in a way, what I'm going to tell you is a, is a program that was developed by the directors of the company who wanted to commercialize in Kombika. Michelle Gerardin, who uh, played an extremely important role in developing the guiding program, the guide training program at Sabi Sabi, uh, had moved on to Johannesburg, where he had taken up a position in marketing and was reading the market and understood the, uh, the desire um, from the public to participate on this course and together with the directors figured out that they could make a commercial um, success of it. And so we were charged with creating this program, not our entire Combi Camp um, curriculum because there were certain aspects of the company that we taught on, on the program that didn't need to be shared with the public. Um, but we wanted to share with the more practical with the public the more practical elements of the course and the sort of the more sexier things to do like driving the Land Rover and shooting a rifle and tracking game um, that sort of stuff so we built the, that into the curriculum Michelle guided me in the setup 
And at that stage of my career at Sabi Sabi, I was the manager of the Habitat and the training manager for the safari team. And so the responsibility was mine on, to set up the camp and run the program for a group for groups of guests. Now, initially, we, we set about launching this to the media. And the course that I'm about to describe to you was launched specifically for three journalists, Mervyn, Mervyn Harris uh, and Peter Davies, Peter Davies were two of the journalists that were on that course with us. And I remember them well because of their characters and the personalities that they were. Mervyn was an older guy and it seemed like he had uh, emphysema. He had, he had a problem breathing and he was a little bit frail. And Peter, on the other hand, was quite young and athletic and uh, he was very interested in the environment. Anyhow, I digress for the moment. Um, I was also responsible for appointing one of our guides to be the preferred ranger training experience guide. So this had to be a specific function and, and one of our team members would be trained specifically to handle these courses as and when they became booked. So I used this the media launch as a training opportunity and the guide who joined me who we had um, earmarked, had been a wonderful ranger, uh, was incredibly empathetic towards guests, and that was the late Mike Simpson. And I'm sure many of you will remember him. Um, Mike, as you know, was a gem of a character and a wonderful guy to have in the hospitality environment um, because he had such a cool nature. He was able to talk to anybody. Uh, about anything and so when guests arrived Mike was able to engage them and make them feel at home almost immediately. Uh, he was also like that with his co-workers and, and fellow rangers where many treated him as a confidant and, and shared many secrets with him and, and so Mike was just one of these huge characters that, that drew people to him and made them feel welcome, warm and I suppose to a large degree loved. So Mike was a good guy to have and somebody who we had identified as being a leader in the organization or an emerging leader. And this was going to be an opportunity for him to develop management skills within the company. So Mike and I designed our first ranger training course for executives at the lodge. We drew up a curriculum. Uh, we had an idea of what we wanted to cover over the the weekend that our guests were there and really we weren't going to be able to go in as much depth and detail as we would normally do for our in-house training and we wanted to touch on a number of subjects so we isolated um, a certain number of birds that we thought was a reasonable challenge to identify over the course of a weekend similarly trees grasses and mammals and at the same time weave into that program the more practical skills of teaching these guys how to or the participants how to track uh, taking them through a ballistics training course where they would learn to shoot a rifle. At that point, we were training on a triple two or two two rifle, which is a much lower caliber <clears throat> and less impactful than the three seven five or the even heavier four five eight rifles. If guests wanted to, after having learned how to shoot the basic rifle, wanted to move on to the bigger caliber, we were in a position to do that as well. Um, but few people participated in that. And then, of course, we, we would train them on four-wheel drive techniques and allow them to sit behind the steering wheel of a four-wheel drive vehicle and take it through an obstacle course um, and, and earn a certificate on, on completion. So that was our program. Mike and I got the camp all figured out. It was late in the winter. It came at a time in, in the low felt when 
we had just been through a horrible drought. Um, when I say horrible drought, I'm talking about a really severe drought where we watched wildebeest and impala, warthogs, hippo, literally dying um, towards the end of the long dry winter, which had not had much uh, rain that the summer before. The bush felt was parched and the animals in some areas were pretty scarce. We were coming to the end of that, launching our ranger training program. I remember the, the weekend well because it was, it was a strange weekend. The, the sky was continually bruised with grey clouds, threatening to bring in rain, which would have been way too early in the year. Um, winds were picking up, not dissimilar to the winds that we would normally get in October, but these winds were picking up, blowing dust around the, the sky, turning the evening sunsets into dramatic hues of gold and orange and mauve and purple. Um, and then most nights hiding the stars from us. But on this particular weekend, the broken clouds revealed a half moon and the twinkling sky above us was majestic when it, when it stood out there. Our first night was quite dramatic. I had chosen to seat myself on the hood or the bonnet of the car. We would place a foam cushion over the hood so that we wouldn't get a hot bum from the, the motor vehicle's engine. Um, and off we would go out in safari. On my left-hand side, towards the side of the, the, the vehicle, was the aerial for the radio, or the antenna for the radio. And Mike would be driving with his rifle cradled in front of him against the dashboard and his participants behind him. That way I was able to direct the vehicle and listen to Mike's commentary and assess his suitability to continue managing the course, which he did with absolute aplomb. It was wonderful. But we got onto the tracks of Lion and we followed them. They were fairly easy to follow at that stage. The wind hadn't picked up too much, so the tracks were pretty crisp and clear and we were able to follow them by vehicle. We didn't even have to get off the, the, the vehicle to go and walk on foot. Um, there must have been a pride of about seven or eight lions. And so we followed them down into the south of the reserve where they entered this, um, this thicket of bush. Uh, it was Chinese lantern bush, um, Dichrostachus scenario. Very beautiful flower, mauve and yellow uh, in the spring. But now that it was winter, it was just this grayish greenish bush that had these long spike thorns on it that if you drove over, you could very easily puncture your tires. So, so iron-like were, were, were the limbs of this tree. The lions had made it through quite easily because they were able to walk below these branches. We, unfortunately, were stuck in a vehicle and uh, were not so lucky. I found myself diving across the bonnet every now and then, holding the spotlight in weird angles as Mike tried to drive his way, pick a path through the, through the bush, uh, most often having to reverse and change direction and retrace his footprint, footsteps and go back at it again in a different direction until eventually we were able to wave our way through the thicket and emerge at a clearing somewhere near the middle of it to find the the seven lions gently grooming each other in the half moon light of the evening. It was a wonderful sighting and of course we had to pick our way out again which was a little easier since we weren't trying to track the lions but nonetheless I was scraped and scratched and was dripping blood from my ankles to my elbows. Once back at camp with our three trailists we discussed the day's activities, what we had seen, how we had seen them and how the whole ecosystem fit together and we were able to discuss and plan the next day's activities which Mike and I decided would include heading down to the Sabi River to see if we could track, not track, but go and fly, find a black crowned night heron, a bird that Norman Mann, the late Norman Mann, had showed me and told me where to go to find its hangout. So I was enthusiastic to get them down there to go and chalk up this particular species of bird. We had not, we had already 
talked a number of the other more common species like kingfishers and luries and shrikes that hung around the camp and, and weren't too far from where we were training. So after lunch, we headed down. It was the late afternoon or the sundowner safari that we were on. We drove down to the Saabi River, parked the vehicle. At that time of Saabi Saabi's lifespan, it was separated from the Kruger National Park, not only by the Saabi River, but also by a four foot or five foot high rusty wire fence, three strands or four strands of wire that were continually being broken by big pachyderms like elephant. Occasionally they would trap an impala that would try and jump through the fence and get itself all hooked up and somebody would either have to come and free up the impala or it would be too late and the impala would have died um, in its efforts trying to free itself from the fence. The warthog seemed to burrow under it without any problem. Uh, the buffalo, I don't know, seemed to make their way through without any issue either. I remember once watching a group of elephants um, cross the fence. It wasn't common to see them doing that, but when you did it was the most remarkable sight because they knew how to push the fence at one of its standards where, it, where, where the wire was at its tautest. They would push on the standard until they could bend it almost flat to the ground and then very gently place one foot, one foot on the top of the, 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 the bent fence post and then very carefully bring up one of their rear feet to stand exactly on the suppressed wire, pinning it to the ground. And while they did that, they would then pivot their bodies, gently reversing over the collapsed fence, and then with its trunk, they would hold the post as it gently removed the foot that had kept the post pinned from the first instant, and then step back, allowing the fence to spring back into position. It was the most remarkable sight, but that fence was a menace. I disliked the fence. It used to catch me in the pants. It was barbed wire, so whenever I tried to split the two bottom strands and bend over and crawl through, I always somehow, to get, somehow managed to get my butt higher than my shoulders and end up being hooked up on the, on the barb of the fence, which was very frustrating. Anyhow, we were going down. We had to cross this fence to go down to the river, which we all did. There were hippo in the river, they're very often in the valley, very often elephant in the valley, and always crocodiles to be seen. And of course, there was a rich assortment of birds that were confined to the river valley itself, which was enough to attract all of us down there. So that particular afternoon, we were going down to look for our black-crowned night heron. Now, as guides, we would only take one rifle out on safari with us. You would have your tracker with you, who would either carry the rifle if he was tracking or would bring up the rear while you as the guide or ranger carried the rifle. But now there were two rangers involved in this excursion. It was Mike and myself and our three trailists, Peter Davies, Mervyn Harris, and another. And the last guy, I simply cannot remember. His name will come back to me, no doubt, when I've completed my podcast. But anyway, it doesn't matter. The important thing was that Mervyn was somewhat physically compromised and I was concerned. I was concerned specifically because if something happened to us and we had to let's say take evasive action like climb a tree quickly to get out of the way of a storming rhino I think he was the one guy that wasn't going to be able to scamper up a tree as quickly as the rest of us and so if he was going to be um, vulnerable I needed Mike on his shoulder with the rifle so I instructed Mike to stay behind and I would lead the trail from the front um, but Mike needed to stay with Mervyn at all times, just for his own personal safety, and Mike was to carry the rifle. So off we went, made our way through the fence, and were working our way down to the river. Now remember, 
This is occurring at a time where Sabi Sabi has just been through a terrible, terrible drought. The Sabi River has restrained it with, with, restricted itself to a small trickle coming down from the, the high felt. Um, it's just a slow little meandering river making its way towards Mozambique. And uh, the vegetation pretty much has been flattened around either bank, except for unpalatable acacia shrine fir tree, which grows in thickets. It's a species that sort of reminds me of a fairy tale about, uh, I forgot her name, Snow White, maybe. And she's she's gets poisoned by something and falls asleep. And a prince has to come through with his big sword and hack his way through this uh, vast bush of creepers that are full of thorns. Well, that's exactly what Dukesha Schwanfertia reminds me of. You cannot beat your way through it. In fact, if you get too close to it, you can't even beat your way around it because it clings onto you. It's got three thorns all pointing backwards. And if you move in one direction, the thorn just, it's kind of a curved thorn. So it, so it twists around and impales itself even deeper into your flesh or clothing. Once you're caught by this bush, sometimes it's easier to hack away the bush than it is to get yourself free from it. And most often, we find the easiest way to get out of it is to close our eyes, grit our teeth and rip ourselves free, sometimes losing pieces of flesh to the, to the bush itself. Nonetheless, we all had a very healthy respect for Acacia Schweinfurtia. And it just so happened that the section of river that we were going down to was in an area where the Acacia Schweinfurtia had grown prolifically. prolifically. Um, fortunately, where we were, we were, there was a sort of a crisscross of hippo paths that had made their way through the, through the Schweinfurtia, almost like these beautiful passageways through these dense, thick walls and... and, and penetrable walls of, of vegetation. As we were going down to the river to go and find this night heron, I stumbled across a, pie, a pile of dung. It was fecal matter. And so I drew everybody around and said, hey guys, here's the opportunity to learn. Now, as rangers, you spend a lot of time examining feces because it tells you about the species of animal in the area. Very often you can assess how long ago the species was there. You can figure out which way it went. And sometimes you can tell what its gender is, which is important because if you're tracking a uh, female of some species, she could have cubs with her, she could be aggressive. If you're tracking a male of some species, like male elephants, they tend to be a little bit more docile. They tend to be individual. Um, and sometimes if you're tracking buffalo, the old males can be a little bit cantankerous. Um, and so you want to know this information before you set forth looking for the species that you are hoping to find. So it was a good learning opportunity. Also, when you examine the dung, you can talk about the biology of an animal. So we bent over and started discussing this fresh pile. Did you hear what I said? I said fresh pile of steaming buffalo dung. <laughs> You could see it had been ruminated many, many times. It was very fine and soupy on the ground. And that gave me the opportunity to talk about the, the, the habit of the buffalo and how it likes to lie down and ruminate from time to time. At the same time, you could see where the urine patch was up the path from the dung itself. A clear indication that this was a male, not a female. And uh, if you looked at the footprint of the, of the buffalo, you could see the two little 
spike marks behind the rear of the footprint showing you clearly which way the buffalo had gone. Also by looking at the footprint I was able to assess that it was either an old buffalo or it was just a very lazy buffalo. Uh, youthful buffalo tend to have a clearer print in soft sand or the mud that we were in. This guy had sunk low, leaving a clear impregnation at the back of his footprint, those two spikes that's the, the four behind the foot. He had dragged his feet um, in the direction that he was moving, leaving these long scrape marks in the sand, which made me think he might have either been sick or just very old. A very old buffalo is cantankerous and should be avoided most often. Um, they're not very nice to encounter. Anyhow, I offered the journalists the opportunity to learn some tracking skills while we were down there. They were, of course, upbeat and enthusiastic. Who wouldn't be? And it's really important that a guide knows how to walk into game because we like to do that. We like to change perspective from sitting in the back of a vehicle, looking at everything from a certain height and in a certain way. When you approach an animal on foot, the secret is or the trick is to try and get in close and move away as quietly as you approached without that animal ever knowing that you had been there. It's a wonderful time because while you're tracking, your mind is focused, so focused on your environment, you can hear a leaf drop. You're listening for sounds, the sounds of birds, the sounds of things that might give away where that creature would be. Lessons that I'm trying to impart to these journalists on our training course, telling them that while tracking is about, yes, following the physical spoor, the actual tracks left behind by the animal, it's also to some degree about anticipation and interpretation of the environment. Where would that animal likely be going? Why would it be going there? Maybe you can kind of cast your mind ahead of where you are, anticipate where you expect that animal to be, and that way you're always going to be ready ready for whatever and always on the lookout and so we proceeded up this path with everybody under the understanding that they needed to be quiet and stealthy i had asked them please if you want to say something if you need to call my attention to the fact that you might have seen the buffalo or think that you've heard the buffalo or anything for that matter just go ch -ch -ch. Because in that environment, I'll hear the ch -ch -ch. it's a little warning sign, it's slightly out of tune, but it blends in with the environment so as not to startle any creature around us. So they all quickly practiced the ch -ch 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 before we left, and then we started tracking. We walked very quietly up this hippo path, bounded on both sides by this thick acacia schweinfurtia. As we were moving up the path, I sort of had this thought, we couldn't go anywhere but forward or backwards. If we walked into that buffalo, we needed to be able to get back to where we had come from because the Acacia Schweinfurtia was clearly going to prohibit us from turning left or right. So it was some trepidation that we started marching up this path very slowly. <music> Ahead of me, I could see the tops, the florally tops of Phragmites reeds, a long grass that dominates wetlands. It tends, to it tends to grow in areas of disturbed soil, so where you have um, bad land practices upstream, the soil gets washed down and becomes a natural area for Phragmites to grow. 
It's not necessarily a very nice species to have in your environment. It's not really natural for that part of our world. And so I could see the tops of the Phragmites waving in the wind. And I wondered if perhaps the buffalo hadn't made its way through there or made its way to there. And uh, so we progressed slowly up this path. Unfortunately, Peter misplaced his foot. Crack! And he snapped this branch. Gave me a heart-stopping fright and I looked up in front of me as the reeds started to erupt as well. The dark patch that I thought was a shadow turned out to be a buffalo. It stood up and appeared to be about 12 foot tall. Naturally it wasn't, but it was just an immense beast gazing down, its head peering out of the Phragmites reeds, the rest of its body just a dark shape in the grass. And looked down, straight down the path, straight towards us. Clearly it had seen us and wasn't happy. In that moment, I had a thought, another thought. This one wasn't as charming as the earlier thought. Mike was at the back, armed with a 458 rifle, keeping Mervyn out of harm. I was up front, armed and dangerous with my yellow Newman's Book of Birds. Its front cover was the Angolan Pitter. And I stood there for a moment thinking, well, I'm fucked because I can't move backwards because I've got Peter and Mervyn and the other guy and Mike behind me. It's a narrow path. There's no way I can get past any of them. And if that buffalo charges, it's going to come straight down this path. I can't go left or right because the Keshishwan Fertier is going to catch me and not let me go. And I'm going to end up with the buffalo, the imprint of a buffalo boss on my chest and hooves placed all over my forehead. I'm likely going to be crunched into this earth that I'm standing on. And if it's not the buffalo that's going to get me, then quite possibly I'm going to get a bullet hole through the back of my head as Mike lines up and tries to shoot that buffalo. I'm screwed, is what went through my mind. Now, it took me a while to say all of that. Out there in the wilderness, it probably happened in only a split second. But it gave me enough time to summon up as much courage as I could and do what any hot-blooded male would have under the circumstances. And I raised my voice and I simply shouted, Fuck off! And as those words emerged from my lips, the buffalo continued its thunderous charge down this narrow path, bounded on each side by the Phragmites. The gap was closing on me. I didn't know what to do. I thought, I've got one thing I can do, and that's hurl my Newman's bird book at it. I picked it up, picked up my right hand, and I gathered momentum and hurled it down the path. The book took off like a projectile. For the first three yards, it went fast and hard until the pages caught the wind. It stopped abruptly mid-air and fluttered to the ground like a duck shot from the sky and landed in a crumpled heap on the ground. I shouted back to Mike to get the guys back. He was able to hustle them. I couldn't see what was going on, but I could hear the scampering behind me. I could hear sloshing of mud as they disappeared down towards the river. Of all the directions to go, they had come from where they last were. Where we'd been looking for that bird, they had gone there. They had gone that way instead of back up towards the Land Rover. I knew for a moment then that we were screwed. We were in such a precarious place. Acacia Schweinfurtier on either side. Trailers that had trapped themselves by backing up towards the river. We were cornered. We were as cornered as that buffalo should have felt. And so I started to move myself backwards very quickly. 
gingerly taking a step left, right, left, right, left, right, until I could see Michael out the corner of my eye. And just as I turned to pass him and get behind him, put myself behind the rifle, get myself out of danger's way and give Mike a free shot at this enraged buffalo bull that had now resumed its charge and was closing down the gap from 25 to, I mean, from 50 to 40 to 30 yards in a heartbeat or two. And all of a sudden it was looming almost on top of us. I had gone back down towards the trailer side, slipped at the bottom of a little donga, which is a, a little sort of depression in the ground where there was mud at the bottom from the from the river itself as i slipped i realized mike can't come any further if he comes further he might too slip in that patch and if he slips and falls the rifle's out of control who knows what can happen to us i put my hand up and i steadied him i held him in the back of his at the low part of the of his back the small of his back and said mike don't come any further shoot shoot But it gazed down its nostril a bare meter from Michael's rifle barrel. Its eyes were dark and you could see the white stained with blood vessels. As it shook its head, it spewed saliva all over us and its nostril glistened in the late evening sun. It snorted twice and then it turned on its hindquarters and charged away back up the path from which it had come, leaving us to stand there like gibbering idiots battling the adrenaline that surged through our bodies. I don't know why Mike didn't shoot. I remember as I was standing there holding him in the small of his back, his rifle was parallel to the ground, firmly planted in his shoulder, his head lowered low over the sights. He was gazing straight down the barrel across the sights and into the brain of the buffalo. His finger was white on his trigger. It was a millimeter, a hair away from that loud bang that I was, in, that I was bracing myself for. It never happened. Instead, Mike whistled. He gave out a and I don't even remember what tune it was, but it was a whistle of calm. Maybe he was trying to calm himself. Maybe he believed he was calming the buffalo. Maybe it was just his way of reacting to the situation, but he never shot. He never shot that buffalo. Mike had never shot an animal. He never wanted to shoot an animal. He was the most gentle man we had on our staff. He didn't need to shoot. And he was lucky. That buffalo got away from us. We got away from that buffalo. And as we all gathered together to try and recount what had happened, the adrenaline started to pump. I could feel it surging through my body. I could feel myself vibrating from foot to head. I tried to put pressure on my one leg to stop it from visibly shaking and then when I did that my other leg would start to move out of control and I would have to shift weight back onto the other one. I pulled out my packet of cigarettes from my pocket and a packet of matches from my other pocket and I opened the box of matches and I struck one match and it was, it flared up and immediately broke and, and, and died out. I tried to strike another one and I broke the head off that one. I was battling to maintain a steady hand. Peter dug into his pocket and pulled out his lighter. He, he opened up and I cupped my hands and he kicked it. And as he cupped, as, it, as the flame exploded from the, from the lighter, my hands shook like they were cold. I drew in on that cigarette and hailed three times and it was done. We all smoked. We all smoked for five minutes as we tried to recount that story, that event, that close call with Mother Nature. It was exuberant, exciting, fun, frightening. It was all those equations, all those adjectives that you can imagine. But 
it stirred in us a, a, a sense of accomplishment and achievement and a level of excitement that did, rattled our bodies and left us feeling supercharged and elated with the day. We made our way out of the river. We made our way back through that rusty old fence, which, by the way, has subsequently been removed by the authorities. Sabi Sabi is now integrated with the Kruger National Park, the Greater Kruger National Park, which itself has been integrated into uh, Transfrontier Park and spills over into Mozambique, a massive area under conservation, very important to our survival as a species. And so, guys, that's, uh, that's my story about Nkombi Camp. There are many more that I have to tell and share, as, as there are, I'm sure you have. I think of all of you, I think of a lot of my friends, um, you know, Michelle, who was to a large degree my mentor at Sabi Sabi. I think of Patrick Shorten, Chris Kruger. I think of Renato Ersmeyer, Inga, Karen Zebel, John Willis, who trained with me. I think of Alan Simon, who I train. I think of the late Ian Harper, Tony Rumerman, who's gone on to write books and lead safaris and develop safari companies throughout Africa. Grant Hind and his role in the development of Fugasa. Russell Hind, his brother, who was a remarkable, charming ranger, always full of nonsense. Paddy Wagner, the late Paddy Wagner, the late Norman Mann. I think of my old tracker, Richard Nduban, my capsan. His cheeky laughter, um, the way he entertained guests and the way he could track animals was phenomenal. Many stories, I have many stories about old Richard. Um, he, he led me into... So much fun at Sabi Sabi. Enoch Nguenya, the old tracker who used to work for us and moved on. Renyos Siwela, who worked late into the night with me once tracking lions for a Canadian film team. So many of you guys are in my thoughts almost all the time. Um, Grant Ashfield, Clint, Grant, uh, Garth, Thomas. Oh gosh, the list will go on and on and on forever. I think of... Rod Windham and what he's done with Sabi Sabi over the last 20 years, him and his team, his marketing director, Jacques Smith and Jan Skoltz, who's running the marketing. These fellows have taken a product that we, I suppose, helped to develop in our day. I'm very lucky in that I still play some sort of a role and enjoy promoting the company over here in the United States. But I think of Nkombi Camp more specifically in that part that uh, Facebook post that was recently seen and I applaud you Rod I applaud you for taking a tradition that started 40 years ago and keeping it going today it's it is the sabi sabi culture it's the breeding ground it's the it's the business that gives us the edge and the company the edge and it is so wonderful to have been part of that history so guys if you've enjoyed this podcast uh, I think the word is like or subscribe. You can hear it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Oh gosh, there are quite a few platforms now that it's on. Um, I'll try and keep the stories coming. I'm feeling, feeling revitalized. My internet sucks, but that's got W3. If anybody in America is thinking of buying into their service, all I can say is don't. They're crooks. Um, anyway. I'll, I'll keep at it, and uh, I've enjoyed telling the story. Yeah. Hope to see you all again soon.